The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. John Gibbons is with us for the last word on environment. John, very good to see you. I think the last time I spoke to you, you were enjoying a nice little holiday abroad, but you've come back, you've been in fine form, you've taken apart the farmers in the last couple of weeks. And now, I'm not too sure what this has to do with the environment, but you're causing a bit of controversy with owners of cars out there with bull bars attached uh, good evening, Ian. Uh, hopefully not. Yeah, it's it's just something that arose. I tweeted about this the other day. I took a picture of a, uh, an SUV in a car park and it just happened to have the, the classic bull bars mounted on the front. And it was a 161D, beautiful, beautiful condition vehicle. Not not something that has been uh, out, out and about in the fields too much, let's say. And I suppose I just thought it was kind of interesting as to what is the legal situation? You know, also, let's start this at the basic stuff. Why would you want to put bull bars on your car in the first place? Now, a little history here, and they started really probably in Australia because uh, it turns out uh, on out in the outback, kangaroos are attracted yes. to the, the headlights of cars and they tended to jump out in front of cars. So the whole thing of putting bull bars was basically if a kangaroo jumped out in front to of you, To protect bang. the people in the car. Exactly, to protect the people in the car. Now, unless you're driving up the Phoenix Park and a kangaroo somehow or other gets out and jumps across in front of you, there's very little chance in Ireland that there's anything you could possibly want to be hitting with your bull bars. Now, that's the light-hearted side of it. The serious side of it is that this has been studied extensively. And what we find is, for example, even in a 20 kilometre hour collision, 20 kilometres an hour, tests have shown that vehicles with bull bars can kill children. Now, the equivalent collision, Ian, requiring mortality, if you like, or, or in, with mortality as a likely outcome in a car with a conventional front is 40 kilometres. So these things are lethal even at low speeds. So even somebody driving 10 kilometres below the lowest speed allowable in the city could hit a kid and kill them with bull bars. Now, it's not a great surprise, of course, because cars are designed over, over many decades with crumple features to protect both the drivers and also to protect the public. So the idea is, if you strike a car, if you're unlucky enough to be hit by a car, the idea is that the car uh, deforms and crumples and some of the energy involved is displaced. And you're also thrown over the car, so the energy, again, rather than going into your body, is displaced. Now, if you put a great big metal hoop on the front of your car and you run into somebody on a bicycle or if you run into a kid, you essentially concentrate and discharge that energy. The steel is directly thrust into that person. Now, one of the studies I was reading about this said that if you simply got a bull bar and swung it at a person, never mind attaching it to a car, you could kill them with the impact. Now, imagine that it is legal in Ireland. And I'll give you what the, the Road Safety Authority... I am going to interrupt yes. you now in a couple of moments, but I'll let you go yeah, with this. Yeah, please, yeah. What the Road Safety Authority, they say it is not illegal to fit a, to fit a bull bar in Ireland, but they say that under Irish road traffic regulations, the fitting of, quote, non-essential projections is illegal. So if you put a great big spike on the front of your car, apparently that's illegal. But if you wrap around iron bars or steel bars, which are every bit as lethal, that's fine. So it's very it's very curious because if you go to Article 32 of the Road Traffic Act, it says, and I quote... Oh, statute is always the easy old to statute. Quote. Vehicles shall not have inessential objects uh, where they're in a position that they're likely to strike any person involved in a collision. So, for example, let's say on the front of your car you wanted to put uh, one of those uh, attached on maybe a some kind of a little icon, you know, the kind of things you'd see on, the, on a Jaguar, like a cat, and you screw that onto the, onto the bumper of your car. If you hit a pedestrian with that, you'll slice them in two. So they don't allow them in. But there's a weird uh, block here for some reason for bull bars. I will, I will come to the text about this, as you can imagine. You talk about the case, they are dangerous to humans, but what about when a car hits another car and a head on impact? That will be, that will, of course, absorb some of the loss, the shock. 
but cars are already designed to, to, to crumple, right? So if you have a car in an unusual situation of a head-on collision, both of the vehicles have crumple zones, Ian. They're designed to absorb the energy of the impact. And that's th- that they've been designed that way. When you attach rigid steel bars, essentially you undo all that crumpling ability and you turn the front of your car basically into a deadly weapon. You said we don't have kangaroos roaming around the Phoenix Park in Dublin. We do have deer. We do have horses. We do have cows. I'm just getting the text in here now. Where are we? Where? What about we have? What about deer in Kerry? We have lots of deer in Ireland. We also have cows, deers, and horses. All the texts are coming in on this. Great. And if anyone would like to provide me with stats for the number of collisions involving uh, deer and cows and and other other animals in Ireland, and the number of people who have been killed with it, as I said, I used the example of Australia, where there was a genuine use for it. But bull bars in Ireland, let's be honest about it, they're a sort of a macho fashion accessory. Look at me. Look at look at my big rum rum motor. And look at my big bars. I'm so cool, right? That's, I'm sorry to say, it's a, it's a sort of a petrol head taken to the next level. Look at me. Now, I would suggest, Ian, I, I'm, I know you said, like, I want to ban them. Okay, let's not ban them. Let's go down a different route, okay? If you feel the compulsion to have these things on your car, if, if that makes you feel alive, let's say, right, how about instead you accept a lower speed limit for your vehicle? So you put in those stickers, you know, the circular stickers that says your, your vehicle is limited, say, to 80 kilometres on the, on the open road and maybe 30 kilometres or even 20 kilometres in the city. That way, you can keep your bull bars, but you don't actually impose a greater mortal hazard on vulnerable road users. You're not going to be very popular driving back through South Dublin, are you? Well, luckily, I'll be taking the dart. (laughs) John, let's go to another. Uh, This is not the motoring slot with Michael Sheridan, but we are talking about the actual environmental impact of cars causing pollution in the oceans. That's right. Um, what we have here, it, it's quite interesting. It's, it's called, Ian, it's called stealth pollution. And this is a really unusual one. It turns out, first of all, let's, let's take the obvious thing. As you, your tyres in your car wear, okay? So your typical car over, or sorry, your typical tyre over the course of its lifetime loses four kilograms in weight. So, so a set of tyres in a car will lose, will shed 16 kilograms of particulate. So basically sheds and that breaks down and it ends up either airborne or washed into the waterways. Now, scale that up worldwide and we're looking at six million tonnes of tyre particles. These are basically microplastics, right? So, for example, what, what's in a tyre? And where this came from, by the way, or at least where the particular focus came from, was a long-term study done on... They noticed there were major fish kills uh, in Washington State in North America. And they couldn't figure out what was killing all the salmon. The salmon were returning to, 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 to breed and they were dying in large numbers. They thought it was uh, pesticides, but they were able to eliminate that. And eventually they, they figured out through experimentation that, in fact, it was particles from tyre pollution. And you might say, well, why are they so deadly? These particles are found to contain a toxic chemical called 6-PPD quinone. Now, it's used as a preservative in tyres by tyre manufacturers. Now, it took scientists 15 years to figure this out. Now, the tyre industry, this is an interesting point, they won't tell us what they put in their tyres. So they say, and I quote, that it's a trade secret. Manufacturers, they won't say what's in it. The industry, by the way, is worth a quarter of a trillion dollars a year. The tyre industry, not one we hear much about, but a hugely powerful lobby. Exactly. And because you can have any chief executive of a car company in now and they'll say, 
combustion engines are gone. We're now environmentally friendly. Electric cars, electric vehicles, batteries, everything. Nobody ever mentions the tyres. That's right. And, and, and they have sway over them because there's only a small number of the tyre manufacturers. That's right. And on that, actually, you, you've segued that really nicely because it is important to say that the switch to EVs will solve nothing in relation to, to the pollution from, from tyre dust. Because, I mean, while it eliminates tailpipe pollution, uh, EVs on... Uh, on the whole, are slightly heavier than internal combustion cars. That means the tyres wear slightly more quickly. Uh, and, and so essentially, as we transition to EVs, if we simply go from millions of uh, regular combustion cars to millions of EVs, this pollution problem won't, won't, won't diminish. Now, I know there's probably people listening to us, Ian, saying, oh, come on, tyres, for God's sakes, this couldn't possibly be a big issue. Now, I'll give you the numbers on it. It is reckoned globally that 28% of the microplastics in the world's oceans are from tyre wear. So it is enormous. Next to textiles, it's the world's second largest source of ocean pollution. That's how big it is. Now, you might say, what's the cure? Now, this is a tough one. First of all, we need to get more transparency from the tyre manufacturers so they stop putting toxic chemicals into their tyres. Now, maybe it helps them in, the, in their life preservers, but they need to be more open and transparent, number one. And number two, we need a lot less cars on the road, with or without I bull bars, with or without bull bars. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, when you think of all the issues we've had about, you know, will we meet the electric vehicle targets in this country? Do we have enough chargers? Do we have enough superchargers? Can you even afford an EV? Can you get a supply of them? The tyres themselves are something that's letting them down. That's right. And, and it's, it's like one of those things I never tire of bringing you new environmental problems on this show. I don't think you're going to like this sex. Is that man related to Eamon Ryan? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, what can I say? If, is that meant to be a compliment or an insult? I'm not I don't quite sure. Know. After the, well, after the farming issue a couple of weeks ago, the Greens didn't get their way on. Anyway, listen, let's move on because if we haven't upset people enough, uh, extinction is close at hand. Yeah, this is... Or we don't know whether it's close at hand or not. OK, what we don't know, or what we know is how much we don't know, Ian, about existential risk. Now, existential risk, that's a, a fancy way of saying things that can really bring the house down pretty badly. Now, there's a new study that's been published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And this, I would stress, by the way, in case people wonder where this stuff comes from, this is a fully peer-reviewed study. And what they've said, essentially, is that collectively we have, quote, dangerously under-explored the risk of full global societal collapse and human extinction. Right. And what they described, they said a catastrophe like this, they described as the climate end game. And in a sense, for folks listening to this, they might wonder why people, you know, in the environmental space get so exercised about we need to cut our emissions. We need to we need to meet our targets. This, Ian, is why. This is the big stuff. This is the end game that we're heading towards. Unless we bend the curve on emissions ASAP like yesterday and stop all this sectoral nonsense about I'm not doing it, what about China, what about America? And we all jump on this together. Basically, the ship is going down. And this survey, or this study, I should say, is very clear. And it said, for example, that the paths to disaster are not limited to the direct impacts of high temperatures, things like extreme weather. They said you get knock-on things like financial crises, uh, new disease outbreaks. And what you get basically are what are called compound events, where one event triggers another event. And what we've discovered is that the thresholds for disaster are much, much closer than we feared. And people who've been listening, for example, to the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel, and they might say, well, yeah, that bad things start happening you know, at, at two degrees or three degrees. What we know, in fact, Ian, is that 
by definition, these intragovernmental organisations are intensely conservative. They tend to, to, to take what's called the path of least drama. Yeah, but if you start catastrophizing everything, people turn off and then you don't get the change. I, I appreciate that. But let's say, just take a simple example. Let's say that you're an aircraft engineer and you are an optimist, right? Would you want to get in the aircraft designed by an optimistic engineer or would you want one who is in fact a catastrophizer? Because the engineer who worries about airplanes falling out of, out of the sky is the very guy who will keep them airborne. John Gibbons, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> the last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4:30. Today.